0: When I was 19 years old, I went to see Bob Dylan play a concert. At the time, I didn't know his music very well at all, but I had just seen a documentary about his early career and I wanted to see him for myself. So a few of us bought tickets to see him play and on the night of the concert, we walked to the venue and I found my seat and sat down and then had my brain blown out of the back of my skull. You know that thing where you do a piece of magic for someone and they just lose it, they go wild? That's what happened. It was like getting hit by lightning. I don't know what I was expecting. But that night, Bob Dylan did not look like a music star from the 60s trotting out the hits for another victory lap. He looked like a mad scientist on the verge of some wild discovery. And throughout the show, it became clear that far from being now, A ghost of what he had been long ago? For Dylan, the opposite was true. That when he exploded onto the scene at age 21, he was just a ghost of what he would become. That he had continued to grow and innovate and explore for his entire career. A few years after the concert I saw, he was awarded the Nobel Prize. And the single off his latest record, which he released in 2020 at age 79, became a number one billboard hit. This is an episode about growth, as a magician, as an artist, as someone trying to do creative work. It's about getting stuck and making progress and finding a way forward in magic, even when you're not sure why you should. You're listening to Everything But The Flame. My name is Nate Staniforth. Welcome to episode eight. Ladies and So then I started to be interested in these things that mystified people. I- there it is, that's the magic part. Institute. A classical trick of magic. I And I knew right then and there that I was being called to be a magician. And thank you very much once again, everybody, for viewing in. There's a conflict in magic. I-, I wonder if there's a version of this conflict in the other arts. I don't know. I'd be interested to hear more about that. But there's a conflict in magic, and, broadly stated, it's this. When you watch Bob Dylan, or Yo-Yo Ma, the famous cellist, or when you go see Alfred Brendel play the Beethoven piano sonatas at Chicago Symphony Hall, you know you're seeing a world-class musician. Even if you don't know anything about their music, you can hear the music itself, and it's undeniable. You can know almost nothing about painting, and walk into a museum and see a Rembrandt hanging there, And even if that's not your thing, you can appreciate the mastery of it. But in magic, because our technique is invisible to the audience, and if it isn't, obviously the magic doesn't work and then that's a different conversation, but assuming the magic is done well, the technique is invisible, and so the audience doesn't know if they're seeing something that took you a decade to study and learn and practice or if they're seeing a magic trick that you bought online a week ago for 19 dollars And that in itself isn't a problem at all. I think simple magic is great. But it then becomes easy to say, if it's possible to astonish an audience with basic, classic, well-established magic, and I think all of us know that it is, then what's the value in pushing forward into more innovative material? What's the point? In an earlier episode of this series, I quoted the great magician Darwin Ortiz when I suggested that it would be worth putting in 90% more effort into a piece of magic to make it 10% stronger. And I am absolutely convinced this is true, that it is worth the extra effort. But if you are the one who's going to be doing the work, it's maybe fair for you to ask, why? This is going to sound like a tangent. I need you to just trust me that I know where I'm going. I promise you'll see why this is important in a minute. A few years ago, my wife Catherine and I went out for dinner at a restaurant. And we had been sitting there for maybe an hour, went in through the front door of the restaurant, walks this woman in her, I bet she was in her 60s. And I have been thinking ever since about how Catherine and I knew right away, without knowing her at all, that this woman owned the restaurant. She was the owner, there was no question. But when I think about how we knew that, I'm not sure. The wait staff all responded to her arrival in a meaningful way, but it's not like they, they gave it away. It's clear this was a person of great significance but most of it was because of her demeanor, the way she carried herself. It wasn't arrogant. It wasn't like she was a celebrity who walked into the restaurant and expected to be seated right away. It was bigger than that. The space clearly belonged to her, and this was communicated in a thousand different small ways, each of them subtle, each of them unstated, each of them maybe imperceptible on their own, but together they formed a picture, a clear picture That she was the one writing the checks around here. This was her place. We were in her environment. And sure enough, after disappearing into the kitchen for a few minutes, she emerged and walked around the dining room, checking in with all of the tables, making sure everything was okay. She came by our table and introduced herself and thanked us for coming. And Catherine and I looked at each other like we had just performed a mind reading routine without knowing the secret. Somehow, we had just. Known. Here's where I'm going with this. As a species, I think we're really good at picking up on subtle, unspoken clues about what's really going on around us. All of us can probably remember a conversation we've had with someone where it became clear to us that the other person had some sort of agenda or hidden motive. Maybe they were selling something, maybe they were promoting something, maybe they just wanted something from you. And this is true of audiences, too. I've done thousands of performances for audiences around the world since I started working as a professional magician, and in that time, I have developed an enormous amount of respect for their ability to see through pretense. Fooling an audience with a piece of magic is one thing, but if you misrepresent yourself, they'll know. They know the difference between a magician who wants to amaze them and the magician who wants to be amazing, or the difference between someone who wants to make them laugh and someone who wants to be thought of as funny. They know the difference between a magician who loves it and a magician who's there because it's eight o'clock on a Thursday and it's time to go to work, and they know the difference between someone who is proud of their work and someone who, for whatever reason, isn't. And they know this. They know all of this because you know it. You know whether you're proud of the material you're performing or bored with it. You know how you feel about it. And in the same infinity of small, subtle, unsayable ways that allowed me to know the woman who walked through the door of the restaurant was the owner, the audience knows it too. So, here's my answer to the question why go to the extra effort as a magician when you can astonish an audience with the tricks everyone does and the lines everyone uses why go to the extra effort and my answer is fine don't use whatever you like you do magic the way you think it should be done but just a heads up because i have been here before pay attention Be aware of how you feel about the work you're doing and the material you're using and the magic you're sharing. How you feel about your work is essential because the audience will know how you feel about it. They'll pick up on it and that will tell them how they should feel about it. That influences the performance. That affects the audience's perception of your work. And fortunately, the solution if you get bored, if you feel like you're stuck in a cycle of doing the same three-trick set over and over again forever, the solution is great. Find something new. Learn something new. Tackle something. Create something. Design something. Or learn something in magic you've always wanted to learn but have never taken the time. There's a Bob Dylan lyric from his 1965 album, Bringing It All Back Home, that I think about a lot. It goes... He not busy being born is busy dying. And I I think it's hard to stand still to hold your position as an artist. I think you're either growing or diminishing, expanding or contracting all the time. So one question that has been useful to me, especially in times where I feel like not much is changing, one question I ask myself is this, which is it? Am I growing in my work as a magician or am I receding? Is the work I'm doing now on the ascent or the descent? Am I still learning new things about the material I'm using or learning new things from the material I'm using? And if so, great. And if not, what's next? Where can I take this that I've never been? What would be new for me? Again, not because the audience will know, but you will know. And that makes all the difference for the audience, too. I received this question recently about a previous episode, and I wanted to share it with you. Hi, Nate. After listening to the last episode, I wanted to know how you deal with failure during a performance at this point in your career. Does it still happen? I can see how getting stuck in the bag as a kid was a tough moment, but it would be entirely different for that to happen to a working professional. Any thoughts on that? Thanks very much for the question. I've had a few people ask about the story I told in episode 5 about my failed escape attempt as a 10-year-old. To your question about whether mistakes happen on stage now and how I handle them, yeah, they happen. I don't know if they always rise to the level of mistake. I think any live performer would tell you that the unexpected happens all the time. But yeah, sometimes things just go wrong. When you're designing a piece of magic, you can often leave yourself a back door. So if something happens that you didn't expect on stage, you can bring the trick to a close without everyone realizing it was supposed to be so much better. But sometimes it's clear, sometimes it's obvious to everyone that things didn't turn out the way you'd hoped. And well, I certainly don't like it when things go wrong on stage, and I, I try to learn from them so I don't make the same mistake again. I also think I think the the weight or the significance of the mistake changes dramatically depending on how you're presenting your work to the audience. Here's what I mean: if you're presenting your work as actual magic, you are claiming to do real magic and you make a coin disappear using your genuine magic powers. And then the audience sees it fall out of your sleeve. That's a problem. That is a direct contradiction between what you're claiming to do and the thing you're showing them. But in the first episode of this series, I introduced the idea of magic as fiction, that model of performing magic, where the audience knows that you don't have magic powers, where you're clear about that, and they see you for what you actually are. Um, which is an artist who's creating these moments in an effort to share something valuable with them. And in that context, a mistake on stage, I don't want to say it matters less because, again, I hate making mistakes on stage, but it at least doesn't undermine the larger experience of the show. They think of you as an artist and, oh shit, this particular creation didn't go the way I intended. That's too bad. That would have been really cool. Back to the drawing board. In the Magic is Fiction model, a mistake on stage sort of acts as a peek behind the curtain where they get to see you perform a piece that apparently wasn't quite ready yet, but you're working on it. Let let me give you a specific example. I have been thinking of this particular moment because it happened in one of my last shows before the pandemic, so I've had a good 18 months to stew over what went wrong here. So here's the story. I had been designing this new piece of magic and... And the effect is that I borrow two watches from the audience, and their owners each stand up, each of them has a watch, and they they pull out the stems of the watch they're holding and spin it as long as they want. So they're spinning the hands of the watch randomly. And the magic is that when they both stop and compare times, they match. Even though they both had a free choice of how long they'd spin the hands, they end up stopping at exactly the same time. At least that's how it was supposed to go. What happened instead was that I missed and the watches were off by exactly 15 minutes. And you could hear the audience talking through what had just happened because it was obvious that the trick hadn't worked. But exactly 15 minutes? 12 and 12.15? 12, what the hell? It was, it was so close and so precise a difference that it didn't feel like the trick had completely failed. It just hadn't quite worked. Which, and maybe this is just me trying to put a positive spin on it, but but was maybe more mysterious than a direct hit. If it hits, well, he's a magician, he's supposed to get it right. And if you miss by 7 hours and 56 minutes, that's clearly a mistake. But missing by exactly 15 minutes was somewhere in between. And so my response was to just explain, this is something I have been working on for a while. I thought I could get it to work for you tonight. Clearly, I still have some work to do. And it was fine. Now, to be sure, I wish I'd been able to stick the landing on that. But the fundamental understanding I have with my audience is is one that means a mistake doesn't crash the entire show. One other question that came up about episode five was that if I ever repeated the Houdini mailbag escape in an effort to get it right and redeem the failed performance. And the answer to that is no. But When I was 18 years old, as a freshman in college, I did lock myself in chains and weights after stripping down to my underwear so I could jump into the river that flowed through campus and recreate Houdini's famous underwater river escapes. That's maybe another story for another time, but I did make it out of that okay. seemed like a good idea at the time. I have a special announcement before we wrap this episode up. Next week, this series is off for one week because of this coming Thanksgiving holiday weekend here in the United States, but I will be back for episodes 9 and 10 of Everything But The Flame on December 8th and December 15th. Until then, if you have a question about anything I've covered in this episode or in the series so far, I'd love to include it in the next episode send me a DM or a voice message on Instagram. I'm at Nate Staniforth. That's N-A-T-E-S-T-A-N-I-F-O-R-T-H on Instagram, and I'll do my best to answer it. Okay, episode eight. Thanks for listening, everyone. More from me soon.